Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Howdy there, Danny. Hey, hey, hey. On our last episode, we referred to, well, you reviewed JJ Rabbit. I did. And uh, I said that I was going to see you that evening and would be able to report back on my thoughts. We're back now. It's been a little while since we last recorded. Um, and JJ Rabbit just won Best Adapted Screenplay at the Oscars. Therefore, it has the, the stamp of approval from the Academy, although it did not win Best Picture. Nevertheless, I think it's important that we return to it and that I get this off my chest. I, well, actually, I didn't, like you, I did not hate the film. Actually, my opinions about it are pretty similar to you. So it's probably quite, you know, unnecessary for me to speak on this. Not at all. But um, my basic take on Jojo Rabbit is that Taika Waititi likes to make one kind of film. You know, the only different kind of film he makes is probably Thor Ragnarok. His other <laughs> films are about little cute little boys growing up and having an endearing time. You know, jerking a few tears and a few laughs as uh, kids learn lessons. That's a perfectly fine kind of film. And uh, he does some things well. I think he works with child actors really well. And he has a somewhat childlike kind of sensibility, I think, and uh, which has strengths and weaknesses. It's kind of twee and sentimental, but at the same time, like things can, can be really fun and really funny. And uh, you know, the kids are really committed to it. And there are, there are things in Jojo Rabbit which are working in the standard way that they've worked in Hunt for the Water People uh, and in you know, uh, several of his other films. I haven't seen Boy. I'm just assuming that his film Boy is about a little boy who's it's actually not. No, no it is. And, lessons. Yeah. and the problem is that it has got Nazis in it. It just, it just He just should take out the Nazis. He doesn't have Nazi in the title, so you could leave the title the same. And instead of being about he's in the Hitler Youth, he's just in a, in a club of mean kids. And instead of being in war-torn Berlin, he's just in regular Berlin. Yeah. And instead of his, you know, mum being... Well, I don't want to give any spoilers. <laughs> it's just there's no Nazis. His, his, his uh, imaginary friend isn't Hitler. It's just like... Um, Who's mean but isn't Hitler? It's Piers Morgan or something. Yeah, you know, teach, teach, teaching him, <laughs> teaching him bad values. And instead of like there being a, a a Jewish girl hiding hiding in his attic, it's just like a his neighbor. It's just his neighbor, and uh, she just gets bullied because she's a bit awkward. Something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, then I think the film would be perfectly serviceable. Basically, that the the issues become apparent like five seconds into the movie when there's this sort of 
bumbly kind of comedy Barney the Dinosaur sort of Hitler played by Tiger Waititi who sort of pops up being like, oh, I, just, blah, 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 I hate the Jews. And, and it's just in a world where anti-Semitism still exists and synagogues are being set on fire and like, you know, it just seems misjudged. Like, yeah, you know, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I mean, obviously a lot of people have said that, but like literally like someone was like run over in a car in a fascist rally a couple of years ago. So... By, by people chanting Jews will not replace us. Yeah, yeah. And, and I don't think they're going to go see Jojo Rabbit and be like horrified that Tyke is dead to portray their beloved Hitler, but you know, with a slightly Norwegian accent, uh, New Zealander accent. I know. So yeah. So so my taking was the same as you. You know. Um, it's and bullshit. I came out. I was like, you know, just go back to just take the Nazis out, and then you'll be fine. Weird. Weird. Film. Weird. Weird film. Uh, anyway, Danny, so when we're not talking over and over again about Jojo Rabbit, what are we doing on this podcast? I can tell you what we're doing on this podcast. So this podcast, if you've not listened before, it's set in the near future where an atomic disaster has reduced the world to poverty. Instead of a government, America is run by an organization called The Merchants who exploit the degenerate remains of society. In order to keep control of the populace, the merchants force Dr. Sam Fawcett to create a new life form, a parasite that feeds on its host. Realizing the deadly potential of such a being, Sam Fawcett escapes the merchants with the parasite, but he infects himself in the process by accident. Now on the run, he travels from town to town, studying the parasite so he can find a way to destroy it, all the while keeping one step ahead of a merchant assassin named Danny Moran, who is hunting him. While resting in a desert town, he's attacked by a gang of hooligans led by Rickus, a former slave of the merchants. The gang steal a silver canister containing the parasite, not realizing what it is, and it escapes and infects one of the members. Eventually, Sam Foster and the gang join forces, and with the help of a pretty young lemon grower named Patricia Wells and a friendly diner owner called Collins, they manage to kill Danny Moran and destroy the parasite, is what I would be saying if this was a adaptation of the 1982 film Parasite. Instead, this is a podcast where we talk about and review films. I'm Danny Moran, and joining me, a kind-hearted scientist in a dystopian future, who, you know, creates, he's like a sort of Oppenheimer chap, he's, you know, he's, but, but, but before he pressed the button, mm. so he's, he's better, mm. Sam Foster. Hello, Danny. On this episode of Film Chat, we review an acclaimed film about wealth inequality and class divisions that portrays the ambitiousness, industry, and deprivation of those at the bottom, as well as the ease and casual cruelty of those at the top. It also features a charming performance by Hugh Laurie. I'm speaking, of course, about Armando Iannucci's latest, The Personal History of David Copperfield. We also give our take on the shock Best Picture winner at the Oscars, Korean drama Parasite, and ask each other, is it a good picture or the best picture? Is it the best picture? Plus, we go over that surprise good result and the rest of the Oscars, and we preview an upcoming biopic, which, like all films of that genre, could win hair, makeup, and acting awards, maybe some singing awards, if it plays its cards correctly. Well, that should leave just enough time for me to announce my latest film project, which is guaranteed to win Best Picture in 2021. It's a Korean-language drama about a romance between a fish beast and an Italian-American driver, told as a triptych spanning the fish monster's boyhood, adolescence, and adulthood as the Black Lagoon creature and a cartoonish Italian man work together to expose child abuse in the Catholic Church. Wow. It's touching all the, the buttons. Uh, that sounds great. Thank you. You got Thank a title? Uh, of course I have a title, Danny. Of course, I prepared my title. <laughs> the title is uh, uh, Peregrine Spoon Water Moon. <laughs> it rolls off the tongue Spot water and into moon. my heart. 
it's Peregrine Spot Water Moon or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance. That's, that's beautiful. That's like, that's brilliant. <laughs> you know, you had me at <laughs> what you said before, but the addition of a slave. Is that the clincher? That clinched it for me. Yeah. <clears throat> you, sir, are a genius. So, Parasite, prepare for me to probably mangle some Korean names here. I'm very bad at pronouncing stuff. But it is written by Bong Joon-ho and Han Jin-won and directed by Bong Joon-ho. And it's a movie best seen, knowing as little as possible, but basically it's about a family uh, consisting of a mum, dad, and sort of late teens, early 20s, uh, son and daughter. And they have an impoverished life where they're living in a sort of basement hovel and... One of them gets a job at a at a rich person's house as a tutor, and basically okay. one by one they try and basically get jobs in the house, and that's probably as much as you need to know. Uh, and it's a sort of chamber piece, social commentary, comedy. Uh, it's everything. This movie, it's got it all. Uh, I would play a clip, but it's in Korean. Uh, so here's a but bit. Ninety percent of our audience is Korean. Uh yes, but for the ten percent who aren't. <laughs> Let's just play a bit of the great score by Jung Jae Il. So in his Oscar speech for Best Director, Bong Joon-ho cited uh, Quentin Tarantino for championing his movies when he wasn't that famous in the US, which is exactly how I heard of Bong Joon-ho. And I remember years ago, because unlike the rest of the world, yeah, I was into Bong Joon-ho before it was cool. I knew about him a mere 10 years into his career, like a real guy on the cutting edge of uh, cinema. And there was a great interview with Quentin Tarantino like described his appeal. And I think he made this very apt comparison where he said he was reminiscent of like an early Spielberg and he cited Jaws as an example of Spielberg's like adeptness with tone. And everyone remembers Jaws as like a horror movie about a shark, but it's kind of like a political movie about the mayor not closing the beach or not. And then it becomes a sort of domestic drama. Then it's like a guy at sea's adventure movie. Then it's like an intense, you know, Vietnam War flashback, but like World War II flashback movie. Then it's a horror film. And Bong Joon-ho has this incredible dexterity of tone, which is present in all his films. But I think maybe just the fact that it's a chamber piece, it's just more concentrated his thing. And his ability to go from comedy to horror to shock in a matter of moments is incredibly impressive and just makes for a, a like a brilliantly entertaining film. 
Yeah, I'm starting to... I mean, this is something we've identified about Korean movies before, that they are comfortable switching between uh, moments of uh, shock and horror and moments of broad, sometimes like quite slapstick comedy. And I'm starting to wonder if this is a feature of Korean cinema or if this is just what good filmmaking is. <laughs> that's just storytelling. Like, those are good stories. Yeah. You know, stories that make you feel different things and they make that a convincing part of the same world. Not stories which are just simply uh, obeying some kind of set of formal constraints that means every scene has to vaguely feel the same because you're only watching like one particular type of film. And I, I, I came out of Parasite, which I really liked, and, I'm, and I'm, I think it's very exciting that it's, it's getting all this attention. I don't know if it's like head and shoulders above like some of the other Korean movies that we've raved about before, like Burning or The Wailing um, or you know, various other films, including you know, Bong Joon-ho's like, past movies. But I just feel like these guys are kind of working on a different level to most Hollywood filmmakers. And there's just this confidence and self-assurance to, to what they're doing, which puts them in a completely different league. And while like guys like J.J. Abrams are trying to imitate Spielberg and fool you into thinking you're watching a Spielberg film, these guys are making films which do the same, like mechanically give you the yeah, same yeah. sense of excitement that grip you and draw you into a story in a way that like Spielberg movies do. And it's like the sort of mainstays in Hollywood are like these kind of um, sad second and third generation people who've kind of forgotten their craft. Like, and, and, (laughs) and like (laughs) these, the, the craft that's on display in a film like Parasite is just something that most of these other guys can't match. And I was trying to think like who else is doing anything like this. And I was thinking of like Ryan Johnson or Jordan Peele, because they at least feel like people who are confident in, in what the stories they are, are trying to tell. But it's still kind of really unusual to see a film that is aimed at a mass audience that really delivers in terms of entertainment and that is just so perfectly elegant and self-assured. It's got this immensely satisfying quality of uh, economy. It's got a few little cast of characters. Every, basically everything that's mentioned has a purpose yeah, yeah, in absolutely. the story. And it all clicks into place. It's a beautifully well-paced film. It's not boring. doesn't outstay its welcome. It really lands the climax. Like the, the finale of the movie is incredibly well choreographed. And uh, every sort of camera move is done for a reason. And uh, it's just, the whole thing makes it satisfying to watch. And I, and I saw it in a, in a packed cinema. It's, it's obviously had a boost from, from winning uh, best picture and uh, everyone's out seeing parasite and it just you can feel it working on the audience you know like people are laughing people are just having a great time in it uh, and this is all for a film which you could conceivably describe as a chamber piece drama and you wouldn't normally think movies of that genre are like incredible crowd pleasers that have people applauding and you know yeah, yeah. and laughing and you know like screaming in horror and stuff well i think part of its appeal is the fact that you're kind of in with the family from the beginning and you're like in on the scheme and so every time they're like telling barefaced lies, you're just aware of it and it's just entertaining. And their sort of uh, resourcefulness is just super charming. And like, because basically the opening acts of the movie is them doing the same thing, but escalating it each time. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. it kind of like pushes it to almost four full breaking point. And at the same time, the score has gone like full, like Bernard Herrmann. <laughs> like, it's like, it's so like fun. It's so kind of joyous. It's like, like this is the thing that only you can only do in films. This only Absolutely, works as yeah. a movie, yeah, and it's brilliant. Um, uh, so one of the, one of the things people uh, focus on in the film is its political dimension. Very hard to miss that this is a film about a class and a stratified society. And Who are the real parasites? It's Sam? like a story of upstairs, downstairs. Exactly, parasite has an incredibly obvious upper meaning. 
Uh, and it's, it is part of what makes the film work, that it's got this straightforward symbolism which is perfectly comfortable wearing on its sleeve although it does it does a little bit of kind of um lampshade hanging with it you know drawing attention to its own obviousness there's a uh character who keeps praising things for being metaphorical he's like that's so metaphorical yeah yeah. and so it's fully it's fully aware of like the bluntness of it but like like anything like like when you use cliches or conventions of any kind these things are just tools that create a common ground between you and the audience that you can then use to do interesting stuff so within this kind of framework of this like basic story there's a lot that you can read into it that's actually quite subtle and really uh, and really interesting i think and it's like it's it's aware of the kind of scaffolding that it's that it's put up about this story of class uh, but it it does it goes beyond that and i think there's a lot to kind of mull over and discuss afterwards i don't yeah. think that you necessarily come out of the film just saying like oh you know poor good rich bad yeah and and one and one of the things that um uh that i think it it succeeds in is kind of depicting the way in which your uh, material circumstances structure your uh your consciousness and the way that you view other people around you the way you interact with the world around you um and the way in which uh these this rich family who are not kind of uncompassionate people they're not especially mean or you know they they, yeah. they don't have extravagant personal qualities of like they're not sheriff of nottingham types you know yeah, yeah. um but they are because they exist in a, this this world where they don't have to encounter real poverty or deprivation they don't struggle they don't have to see people uh who who are worse off than them really or like come you know like deal with their lives that in itself gives them a lack of compassion towards others and a, and a lack of interest in other people's humanity and it means that they very casually treat people as less than human and in the same way the film dramatizes how being in very very difficult circumstances uh, forces you into this like particular kind of um competition and uh, uh ambitiousness uh which you know puts its own strains on you and i think like there are again i think yeah sorry i'm trying not to stray into into spoiler territory at all Mm. but like the way in which violence is used in the film is is in this way and i don't know how much of this is the film whether it's just my own perspective on it but it felt to me very (laughs) non-judgmental yeah even though you could read a plot synopsis of this film that made one side what would make one side sound like the villains because of like the actual actions that they do which are clearly more criminal you know or like and like you know cause more like direct harms but like in the way that the drama plays out i think you can see very clearly that that it's that it's not a case of one person being more virtuous than another but a case of the circumstances that people are forced into and it, that like basically if you're in the uh, lower echelons of society you have to deal with shit that the rich people just simply do not ever have to deal yeah, with. yeah. you have to confront questions that they don't have to confront and that's kind of literalized in those the the actual physical spaces of the yeah of, of the film as well as like you know dramatized in the way people behave and i found all that stuff like really satisfying and you can you know you can come away and like you know chat about people's motivations and why you know people act in a certain way and i think in a way that's uh, that's very rewarding i've got a question for you about this movie sure so do you think that it challenges the kind of you know insofar as the film is a, is a radical film in that it's about class politics and you know has a, a, a basically a progressive angle on it it display it displays an injustice and yeah, yeah you know and how people suffer due to wealth inequality um do you think that it's a kind of challenge to that level of radicalism because it's been so universally acclaimed you know if you have a room full of multi-millionaires applauding you well elon uh, musk said it was his favorite film of geez. the year 
<laughs> really? The, the, the parasite Elon Musk. <laughs> yeah, the fucking parasite Elon Musk. <laughs> yeah, if billionaires like your movie, you know, is that a problem? Oh, I don't know. It's, just, it's the same way like douchebag Wall Street bros think Wolf of Wall Street is a fucking great movie. <laughs> I just think rich people are fucking morons, you know, some of them. And like people just like to be on screen no matter how badly they're being, you know, taking the top. Like that, the entire British film industry is about... Uh, miserable middle class people how how the utter wankers and like fucking middle class people love those movies that so, is true yeah. like, that is true I don't know I think it goes back to we were discussing like a few weeks ago like you saw that tweet was like my favourite part of Black Panther is when he turns to the camera and says I'm a communist yeah 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 it's like it's just it's like first and foremost like it's a really well made character driven yeah it doesn't it's not, have it's not, to be it doesn't have to be communist propaganda to be good you know? yeah exactly <laughs> I think it's just got more bite to it than this type of film or just like mainstream cinema in general. Yeah. But maybe that's just something that says more about just this general state of mainstream cinema. It's like people talk about seventies films being so political and like, it's just now they they didn't do anything. They didn't do anything. But yeah, I don't know. Like I just don't, I just, I think, I think, I think that's a, yeah, that's a good response. All right. So parasite, very positive review from both of us. Anything else to say on this or? No, I think we've covered it all. See Parasite, folks. It is the best picture. Superhero films announced. Casting rumours leaking out. M. Night Shyamalan's film is hated. Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated. Meryl Streep's Oscar tipped. Matt Damon's in a viral vid. Michael Bay's made a mint. That's the news that's fit to print. I've got got another question for you. I don't want to keep putting you on the (laughs) spot. Yeah, yeah. How surprised were you this one best picture? What's the explanation? I was really surprised. Uh, yeah, I was I mean, reading some. I, I, I thought Moonlight was basically the outlier. Yeah, you know, and that like it was some kind of by some shock thing. This like one good film got through because so so many of the other um, best picture winners recently have been such lowest common denominator, middle brow, kind of nothingy stuff. Yeah. Uh, whereas Moonlight is a really special film uh, that doesn't give you easy answers. And like having seen Parasite, it's a it is a crowd pleaser in a way that Moonlight was not. It feels like it's a very accessible film and it's like ticks all sorts of boxes just in terms of, you know, being it's just absolutely high quality products. You know? Yeah, yeah. So you can see why why people are going for it. But at the same time, I was watching it being like, really, a Korean language drama. No, <laughs> no one in this movie is famous. There's like no special effects that are spectacular. Yeah. Like, what is the narrative around the film that has driven us to become be- the best picture winner? Or is it just a case of last man standing in a year where there was no there was no front runner? Yeah, I'm like, maybe like all the above. I think it was, yeah, the the movie no one hated. And they often say that like, because of the, I think it's like a runoff voting, like the movie that's ranked third out of the Academy voters is the one that wins. It was third or second. Yeah, it's preferential voting. Yeah. yeah. So maybe it's that. Partly I think it was it was just the the movie, like it had the kind of zeitgeist behind it. And if it wasn't a Korean language film, do you think it would have just been like a shoo-in going into the Oscars or like just the favorite the the big barrier was just the fact that it's korean right like the actual movie itself isn't remotely controversial or that's definitely true but like you they, i would that would usually be a yeah yeah a barrier that would be totally disqualified i don't know if it's because like the it was the big winner but only won four you know there wasn't it wasn't like a huge sweep yeah um and it feels a bit like the voting like every film got an award yeah somewhere <laughs> so is it just like you know it didn't it wasn't like return of the king or Titanic. yeah yeah like yeah. maybe just the the votings were just like it's a bit split this year yeah yeah and i also think that it was a little bit like liking parasite was like your cool alternative option it's like have you seen this 
Korean film, Parasite, made by the most successful Korean director of his generation. You know, like, it's yeah, just yeah, the yeah, fact yeah. that there's a little kind of street cred attached to it. Also, I think people just like saying the word bong. I think that's a big part of it. <laughs> it's just a fun name to it's say. It's just a fun name to say. Yeah. Also, also sorry. And um, something else pointed, pointed this out is that the director's category of the Academy Awards is very international or has become very international in the last decade. Only one American has won it, which is Damien Chazelle. And five Mexicans have won Best Director in the last 10 years. And one uh, French guy, uh, Michel Hazavanicius. Yeah, the uh, guy won the artist. What, won the artist. Five, five Mexicans. So Inaritu. Twice. Twice. Quaron twice. twice. Gamera del Toro. Gamera, sorry. All right. So three Mexicans, five times. Um, yeah. yeah. Tom Hooper for King's Speech. And oh, Ang Lee. So one for Taiwan for Life of Pi. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the directing award has become more international the last 10 years. I don't know. That's a very interesting trend that I had not noticed before. Yeah, so I don't know if that's just pushed into the best film, maybe. I don't know. Like, yeah, because it won the Palme d'Or. Like, all other sort of... uh, Only, like, the BAFTAs and American award ceremonies have this weird distinction. Like, all international film festivals don't don't have it. When when was the last time the the Palme d'Or winner and the Best Picture winner were the same film? Hi there, Danny here. I'm just editing the podcast and I realised we didn't actually answer this question. I've done a quick Google and it turns out there's only one other film that's won the Palme d'Or and then gone on to win Best Picture. And that's the 1955 film Marty, directed by Delbert Mann, starring Ernest Borgnine and written by Paddy Chavesky, based on his 1953 teleplay of the same name. I'll just pop you back into the main show now. Okay, okay, bye-bye, bye. Sam. Can, yes, I, can, yes. I ask, can I ask you a question now? You can ask me a question. How yeah. surprised were you that Eminem turned up at the Oscars? When Eminem... I lost my shit. <laughs> I, 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 I flew off the handle with joy when Eminem turned up at the Oscars. I, it, I was woken up by the push notification on my phone because I wasn't actually watching the Oscars. And it was just from The Guardian. It just said Eminem just turned up at the Oscars. <laughs> and I turned on all the lights in my room and I was like, you are kidding me. This can't be happening right now. Are you serious right now? <laughs> what? Uh, and uh, then I couldn't get a wink of sleep. It's the night. It's it's, I found it. So have you have you watched the video of it? Him performing "Lose Yourself." Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, he does and lose like, himself. Uh, he loses like, himself in the. And like Mars Scorsese is looking quite tired and like bored. The thing that's so funny about it is that so he was nominated for best song and won in two thousand and three, or maybe it was a two thousand four actual Academy, but for Eight Mile for "Lose Yourself," and then he didn't turn up then. And then just randomly 17 years later, he turns up. <laughs> but the song is like, if you had one shot, one opportunity, is <laughs> like, would you capture or you let it slip? He's like, he did let it slip, but... But, but he's got another opportunity. Which is the complete opposite message of the song. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's like, you've only got one shot, don't miss your chance to blow. He missed it. <laughs> opportunity comes but twice in the lifetime? Like... Yeah, his, his very presence was destroyed the meaning of that song. Did, did they explain why Eminem was at the Oscars? No, they just he was just there. He just I missed, you know, I didn't check my email 17 years ago, but I'm I just did. That seems like the outcome of a brainstorming session. It's like, well, I don't know what we're gonna do. Can we just get Eminem back in to perform "Lose Yourself"? Like that's a hit song. Yeah, I mean, it's a good song. I mean, it's a great song. It's better than the song that won, which was that random Elton John song. Elton John song. The Elton John song. John song. But you know why not? So at this at this year's Oscars, we've already talked about Parasite winning Best Picture and how exciting that was. Uh, a bunch of clearly worse films did not get that. 
that it felt to me a bit like the headline kind of awards otherwise went to understandable places. Yeah. So Joaquin Phoenix won Best Actor for Joker. A lot of people saw him as the clear frontrunner for that. Whether you think it was a great performance or not, it was a big one where he lost a lot of weight and he did sort of crazy stuff with his legs yeah, and, and arms. And also he's just, face. he's done enough good performances, right? And it's he's done a, enough good it's performances. It's like a sort of lifetime achievement award, basically. Yeah, and it also won uh, Best Score by an Icelandic composer whose name I'm not sure I could, you know, attempt to pronounce. Uh, and it did have a really good score, Joker. And I actually think it's it's a really underrated part of why people like the movie. The score yeah. is the score of a serious film. The yeah, film yeah. is not a serious film. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but the score is a serious score. So, you know, uh, that seems quite just. And uh, 1917 won uh, in some technical categories. Did Deacons get it? Deacons got it. Yeah, and that seems reasonable because it was a f- the film was kind of it was like a technical showcase first, I would say, and a film a film second. It was a bit like a like one of those random BBC dramas with a with a very complicated technical gimmick attached to it. Uh, so it seems reasonable that it won in those categories and not in the others. Um, and uh, yeah, were there any big stories to come out of the the ceremony? I don't know. Just the parasite was the big winner. I felt like it was a similar thing to in the artist one, which like there's the director and the team are just so fucking charming. Everyone was just. They're such sweethearts, you know? He's just extremely charismatic, unassuming dude who loves movies so much and just makes very sincere speeches about how much he loves films. And it just feels very genuine and deserved. There's like, there's no cynicism to, despite his movies being so irreverent and subversive, like the man himself is just, uh, yeah, yeah, devoid of any of that. He seems, he seems extremely charming. He actually reminds me a little bit of Barry Jenkins, another guy who's just seems like a cool dude. Yeah. You know, modest, humble. Obviously, very talented. Yeah, yeah. Ted Phillips was a great filmmaker. I mean, he's lying. He's lying out of niceness. Out of niceness. Like, that is a sign of, of like real generosity. If I'd won that award for Parasite, I'd be like, "Thank God you didn't give it to these <laughs> fucking hacks here." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Bong, you're you're a better man than either of us. <laughs> he's I, the best I, of I us. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have been able to resist a dig at Todd Phillips. Yeah. <laughs> Hi there, Danny again. I've just realised while editing this that there's not really a smooth link between sections here, so I thought I'd just pop in here and just say uh, that bit of conversation is out over and we're moving on to a new topic. Okay. Okay. Stop giggling. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Bye. Musical biopics, Danny. Are you pro? Are Not you con? Con, I would say. Con. Yeah. Well, here's a film you won't like. <laughs> <laughs> Bradley Cooper is lined up to play BG Barry Gibb himself. BC playing BG? BC is playing BG in 2020 AD uh, in, a, in, a, in an upcoming film. It's going to be written by Anthony McCartan, who uh, I, I don't think I've seen any of his films. I think you've seen all of his films and you've hated all of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, but you haven't seen the two popes. Haven't seen the two popes. I think you've got to you've got to keep up your your McCartan completist uh, yeah. streak. 
and, and, and catch up with that. He wrote Bohemian Rhapsody. He wrote The Theory of Everything. He wrote... Uh, what was that? The, his Darkest Hour. The Darkest the, Hour. The Darkest Hour. Yeah. And did he did he also write the film about Alan Turing? Uh, no. That was... But that was some, some other guy. Some but other guy, but it's the same kind of thing. Some guy marginally more talented than him, possibly. Yeah. Um, and it, it seems like they're trying to capitalize on the uh, success of Bohemian Rhapsody and Rocket Man recently, and I guess, like you know uh do better than the sort of other less ex- there's been variety of these yeah, yeah. biopics they're like constantly spitting out there's an up- there's that upcoming one about bowie as well that we've talked about on here yeah there's w- they've announced one about boy george right yeah the thing that's weird about this is that i guess it ties back to the oscars because it felt like after walk the line and then the underrated comedy walk hard that type of film died in like the mid noughties yeah like, there was like ray, ray yeah and then it's almost like Whacking Phoenix would have won Best Actor then, but they'd just given one an award to Ray. It's like, we can't give it to another dude playing a musician who had some trouble with drinking or whatever. I forget what won Best Actor in whenever Walk the Line came out. And then it sort of died. And now it sort of made a big comeback. These kind of like filmed Wikipedia pages. I haven't seen Rocket Man, but that also feels like a film which was uh, perhaps negatively... How do I put it? Like, if Bohemian Rhapsody hadn't come out, I think it would have done better. Like, yeah. Taron Egerton got a Best actor for musical or comedy at the golden globes but didn't manage to get a nomination and it feels a bit like if Beam rhapsody hadn't done well the previous year they would have looked more favorably on it yeah yeah, yeah. i think that's probably true but yeah i do like uh, barry cooper's barry cooper as i will be calling him he's already formed into barry cooper in my head bradley <laughs> he's gonna be method acting and changing his name to barry but like basically you know he uh did a bit of disco dancing in american hustle you know 70s disco dancing and then the bg song Love Somebody was used extensively in the trailer for Joy, which he starred. And in A Star is Born, if you just like boof on his hair a bit more, he's got the beard, he's got the long hair. I see it. Just feels like quite an imaginative casting. Well, his, can his can't, vote, can't any actor play anyone who was in the 70s owing to the, the, the existence of big hair? Yeah, just add the big hair. Just add the big hair. His vocal register is several octaves lower than barry gibbs right You're right he's got to do the opposite of what he did <laughs> that's uh, acting for a star is born. that is acting and in he... star is born i remember he was talking about how he was like you know he had to drink a gallon of whiskey a day or something yeah, yeah. And, and like eat like you know 40, he's gonna be drinking a gallon of ga- gallon of helium a day gallon of helium a day yeah yeah he was so gravelly in that movie now he's just gonna be a little uh, squeaky chipmunk <laughs> um tell me if this sounds like a familiar film story to you the movie would follow the group Barry, Morris, and Robin uh, from the time they arrived in Swinging London from Australia and had their first number one hit with the song Massachusetts in 1967. First act of the film. Yeah. They arrive in London. They have a big hit. Uh, this is on, this is on uh, the Daily Mail. Don't go there, kids. <laughs> it's yeah, just yeah. the link I clicked from The Guardian. Uh, they had bouffant uh, coiffures, even bigger sideburns, gold medallions bedded on chest hair and trousers so tight that they've been sprayed on. I'm, I'm already loving this film. It's so entertaining. Yeah, yeah. And in a couple of years, the Bee Gees had lost their fears. The band unraveled. Substances, pills, and booze were involved. Oh, what? no. A downfall. What? They got rich and famous, but then they got addicted to I drugs. I can't and... believe this. What? Oh, that's going to be a tough, but don't worry about it. All right? We're going to be down. We're going to be down what, in this what, part what, of the what, film. What, what could have possibly happened? So Robin did a solo album. Barry and Morris moved unsuccessfully into television and made albums that were never released. All right? That is the downward ebb of the film. Oh, God. But, then they relocated to Miami and began developing a new sound which incorporated their falsetto harmonies with disco dance rhythms. Oh my God. They make a stunning comeback. The wow. disco dance sound blows everybody away and, uh, and try, you know, yeah, roll yeah. credits. Roll credits on Fantastic. staying alive. Yeah. The thing that's 
kind of unique about the Bee Gees though is that like often with these uh, biopics, they're basically kind of like musicals with a jukebox musical, but all the music is the artist. But I think the Bee Gees are most associated with Saturday Night Fever. Like all their really good songs are already in a well acclaimed, you know, acclaimed film with a you know with drama and stuff. So like you just take the <laughs> you take the songs from Saturday Night Fever, but then spread it out over ten years, but just make it about them instead of being yeah. like John Travolta and like you know trying to escape his humdrum existence. It just sounds like a worse film. I want to see a film where Bradley Cooper plays Hans Zimmer, <laughs> and like the whole film is just scored to like the Inception, the Inception, and Don Cook's. You know, after the Lion King, it just wasn't getting much work. <laughs> the pills, the the money, and then like <laughs> then like. He gets a, call. a young British man comes knocking on his door and says, hello, I'm Christopher Nolan. Do you want to do Batman? He's like, fuck off. He just does he throws, a- <laughs> he throws an empty bottle of whiskey at the, at the door or something gets smashed. But away. he just really needs the money. So he's all right, I'll do it. And then yeah. before he knows it, so he crawls into the studio. <laughs> Everyone, he's, he's stinking. Everyone's like, Zim has lost it. He can't. He's trying to score Batman Begins, but it just sounds dreadful. It sounds like complete shit. Yeah. And then after he goes out on like a you know a balcony at night, you know, <laughs> talks to talks to Christopher Nolan. He's inspired by his Chris three PC, and then he just goes in the next day and he just fucking smashes it out one take the whole yeah, score. Yeah. yeah. And the rest is history. Uh, I'd love to see Bradley Cooper and Zimmer. <laughs> <laughs> That's what the film's called, Zimmer. <laughs> or, or or Hands. I think hands. That's, that's... <laughs> Or just Hans Zimmer. How about Hans, a Zimmer story? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> My favorite film stars Bridget Bardo. She's the queen and she wants to be in radio. So she starts a podcast with her friends. And the terrorists try to stop her, but she beats them in the end. All right. We are delighted to be joined by a rare guest in the studio. Uh, it is our close personal friend, Jake, Jake Hoskins. Jake, welcome. Hello. Hello, thank, hello. Thank you for joining us. Long time uh, friend and listener, first time guester. First time appearer. Yeah, we do. Uh, the perspectives you get on this show, I think, are a little narrow sometimes. These two guys, they've, they're both white, both straight, uh, both went to the same school, uh, both from the same place. And uh, I think it's really important that we, that we diversify a bit. Got to broaden. So you've got, so, so you've got, you've got to broaden. <laughs> if you want to stay alive in the podcast business, you've got to, you've got to broaden. Uh, so that's why we thought we, we, we'd, we'd bring you on board. Um, and we're going to be reviewing the, the, uh, the new Armando Nucci film, The Personal History of David Copperfield. Armando is uh, late period Armando taking an unusual move outside of political satire. He's done the Soviet Union. He's done Blairism. He's done the U.S. presidency. Now he's doing David Copperfield. It's a little departure for him. And uh, he's retelling that age-old story. Everyone knows it. Everyone loves it. And it stars Dev Patel as David Copperfield and has a, what I would describe as the classic British cast of familiar faces. You've seen these guys uh, and you love them. <laughs> You've seen them. You love them. You will uh, love them. It's got Tilda Swinton, Hugh Laurie, Ben Whishaw, Paul Whitehouse, Peter Capaldi, various people. Here is a clip of this lovely, lovely whimsical film. Hello. Can you wake up? <coughs> What are you doing? Medicine. Reviving you. This is salad dressing. Is it? <clears throat> I thought it was Armagnac. Don't have my spectacles on. Do you have a lettuce somewhere covered in ointment? Um. His head is entirely removed from his body, we're sure. Let's leave Charles's head on one side for the moment, Mr. Dick. Pick it up later. Understood. How do you do? Now, Mr. Dick, don't be a fool because no one can be more discerning than you when you choose. David Copperfield. 
My brother, you've heard me speak of him. Yes, just then. Oh, uh, you mean before that? Uh, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I remember. Oh, I'm hungry. Cakes, um, cakes. Oh, Mr. Dick, my brother, David Copperfield, this is his son who's run away. What shall we do with him? One thing you could do is... I'm I'm you. I'd wash him. So, Jake, we saw this together in the Pack and Plex. We did indeed. Uh, what, what are your thoughts? What did you make of it? Uh, I really, really liked it. I was blown away by how much I liked it. You've read, you've read David Copperfield, right? I, I have read David Copperfield. And, uh, yeah, about seven years ago. And I really liked the book. And I thought, uh, I don't know, you, you know, you go in and I knew it was going to be this cast of uh, all of these British actors that you know and love. But... Having seen, uh, what was the, the previous one? The Death of Stalin. Yeah. Which I thought was a real misfire. I was like waiting for the jokes. Um, and with this one, I thought, okay, I, I feel confident it'll be a return to form. But equally, I think I went in just thinking, I know what we're going to get here and it'll be fine, but it won't be amazing. But afterwards, I thought it was amazing. I thought so, they couldn't <laughs> have nailed it. They couldn't have executed it better. So I, I've read, um, like, I haven't read David Caulfield, but I've read a bit of Dickens. And <laughs> I've read a bit of Dickens. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about um, And, uh, like, one, one of the, the like, things I'm aware of of Dickens is the fact that he, he tells, they're kind of social critiques. Like, they're not necessarily sort of politically radical, but he tells a lot of, like, sprawling stories that span high society, low society. And there's definitely a kind of, He's, he's animated by a sense of disgust at the treatment of the poorer elements of society and like the impoverishment and stuff. And that's certainly element within, within David Copperfield. But I, I felt like um, this was... So one of, one, of, one of the odd things about the film, or like one of the sort of different takes on it is that it's, it's got this kind of theatrical framing device uh, and this kind of whimsical, playful quality to it that is almost somewhat fantastical. It's all framed by Dev Patel kind of uh, in a theater talking about his life story to, to an audience, which is kind of the cast of the film. And the movie is punctuated by these little theatrical flourishes uh, that kind of illustrate that you're seeing a version of his life as he is told. And there's a bit of fourth wall breaking and there's all this kinds of stuff. Stylistically, for some reason, it reminded me of uh, Joe Wright's version of Anna Karenina, where like the whole thing was shot in a theater for some bizarre reason. But this gives it this like fun, kind of colorful quality. It kind of distinguishes it from you know your standard BBC adaptation that's more straightforward. But I did feel like it, if there was any bite to this depiction of Victorian London whatsoever, that it was kind of lost. And 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 I'm curious to, to see what you think of like if that's if that kind of morality is present present in the novel in a way that wasn't in the movie. Yeah, uh, it's a good, it's a good question. I think um, like. <sighs> I think they did right not to uh, like labor the point on that. Like Dickens definitely does do it, but the way the kind of rights that he was fighting for or trying to uh, bring to people's attention about you know brutal conditions in like the workhouses and stuff is sort of like well you, there are parallels today. Obviously, we're still fighting for a lot of rights and things we need. It's sort of you know it's so it, it, it's so long ago that all that stuff is a bit obvious now. So. I think to have tried to kind of make that a big kind of theme in the film would have taken away from the fun and not really said or added anything new. Um, so I think they did right by that. And I don't think that even actually David Copperfield is a particularly kind of preachy one. Like he has a bit of a miserable time, spoiler alert, in, in his childhood when he's uh, like in this bottling kind of plant. But it's not like 
Dickens goes on and on about it uh, in that one. So yeah, I think they I think they made the right choice to just keep it very fun. It's it's a it the novel is sort of yarn. Oh, it's a yarn. I've, I've read uh, Nicholas Nickleby, and that was very yeah. much a yarn. It's it's a yarn and a big, half. Big ball of yarn. A big old ball of yarn. And I think they executed it perfectly because it's such a funny book. And I was worried that, like, it's really funny, but it's really particular to the time and the style of Dickens' writing. And as you're reading it, you're thinking, well, I was thinking, God, this is really, really funny and really amusing. But it's so kind of specific to it. It's not the sort of thing where if you're reading something now and you just read something funny you can instantly turn to someone and go oh you know read it out to them and it's funny whereas you have to be kind of in the book and understanding what's going on and there'll be some hilarious line but it would then take me five minutes to explain why it was funny and so I was a little bit skeptical that maybe it wouldn't work being translated but I just think the 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 adaptation was perfect the way they adapted the jokes they cut everything down was just like I, I was just a hundred percent amused and entertained throughout um i think we all left the cinema feeling like just really sort of joyous it's just it was just a real a damn fun film <laughs> i had a, i had a really good time with it yeah. i i think that for me it was a little bit like um I, I it was very enjoyable but it has not really lingered in the memory and i think it's a little kind of light and fluffy the, the yeah. thing, the thing that I felt about it is that it's very effervescent. It's mm. a bit like it's this kind of bubbly, fun thing that is kind of there and then it's gone. It's like drinking a little flute of champagne, and uh, and it's and like everyone is having a good time. It's very colourful, and the, the like the down bits don't really like sit on you for too long, and uh, everyone sort of cheers at the end. It's basically like an audience that every, everyone claps at the end, and it's like you've just seen the latest fun film yeah. from uh, Amanda Yunichi. <laughs> But it hasn't really sort of weighed on me. And I guess maybe there is an element of um, it being hard not to compare to uh, Parasite, which uh, we just reviewed and uh, which you saw recently, um, which is uh, also a so has, d- displays a society of great wealth, mm. wealth inequality. But that's, uh, a, that's a lingerer. That's, yeah, well, I that's, think a ling- that's, that's a lingerer. Ooh, that'll linger. Okay. I mean, it's a, yeah. th- there's, there's a lot of substance in that film, and I, and I feel like there is, isn't a great deal of substance in Stable Caulfield. Although I did also uh, prefer it to The Death of Stalin in that, like, the Death of Stalin is a film which, you know, was doing some kind of messaging, which I felt was like not especially successful, which was kind of saying like the Soviet Union was like Blairism with murders or something, which just seemed a bit like, you know, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it seemed a bit skin deep. Yeah, I, yeah. Um, and, uh, and so like the absence of that kind of preaching, I think, uh, was 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 helpful, Very welcome. helpful to this movie. Um, the one of the things people talk about this film is the colorblind casting. So it's quite unusual in that it has a cast of characters who are all white in the novels, far as yeah. I'm aware. I don't necessarily yeah, know any characters, um, but it's got an incredibly diverse cast. Obviously, Dev Patel playing David Copperfield, and there are uh, various other actors of colors in the film, and and they're all related. They're like people who are related in ways you know that like ignore their actual ethnicity. What did you What did you make of this? Did you like I, that element? I really liked it, and I thought it was perfect. It was the perfect kind of film. I mean, there's tons of different kinds of films you could do that in successfully, and I think this was absolutely one of them because what you talked about earlier about the the fact that you've got this familiar cast, like every single face that pops up, you're like, oh, that's the one from Line of Duty, or oh, isn't she in Motherhood? And yeah, you know, it's like it's the great. I know them already. Yeah, so you're already just like taken out of the reality of something a little bit by it's like oh great it's you know insert british actor here um and i think that 
okay, if it's a film that's trying really hard for, I don't know, some sort of realism or you know, whatever, historical accuracy, fine, you can make the case that, no, they've, they've got to be this or that race or colour. But for this, it's like, they're all characters. The Thing was a really fantastical kind of romp and just him telling a story anyway in the in the in the theater the whole premise of it is yeah you're escaping into a story and so just get the best actors that that, that can do that part i thought it was uh great and i'd really i hope it sort of spurs people on to think about oh actually you know if they're making their next film well why couldn't we do why couldn't we do it because i thought it was just yeah worked brilliantly yeah i definitely uh think in the in, it, it works in this type of film well and i, I think yeah, they, they made the right choice for it um, and uh, it did feel refreshing, and it's great to see um, obviously more diverse casts on screen, particularly in these types of British film. I mean, we had um, Emma, which came out um, just recently, the new adaptation oh, of yeah. Emma, which is a very straight down the line one, and like various like people commenting on it being a bit like this movie is blindingly white, yeah, know? and it becomes like I think we're getting into a um, and into a culture now where it's like it just becomes. You know, noticeable yeah if, yeah uh, if, if your films only have white faces in them especially um, when they made emma like 10 years ago or something with gwyneth paltrow it's like it's, it's not like we were crying out for another one they yeah, just yeah. made the exact same film um uh but i but the, the yeah. only sort of thing i would say is like i think it is slightly limited in that it is it's not a substitute for uh telling different kinds of stories or stories from different perspectives or telling stories that recognize uh, the realities of social divisions. So, like, colorblind is good in that you increase mm. increase uh, representation. It, it's it's good for that kind of thing. But it also uh, is fantastical in that, like, we don't live in a colorblind world. Mm. So, if you're telling a story that is about a world in which, like, um, like people's uh, race is irrelevant, it's sort of utopian. But yeah. it can be a bit of a uh, like escapism that, like. I, you know, I think it was good yeah, that they did it. Pretend, it was good they yeah. did it, but let's not pretend that it's like a replacement for like telling stories that that give other perspectives or that uh, that that recognise like the realities. You know, that still that still exists. And I was I was slightly um, so earlier today I was mm. listening to a podcast where they were talking about uh, the watch the Watchmen TV show. Oh yeah. And um, one of the things that they were saying on that show that was so refreshing about Watchmen is that the, the TV series is take, it's in this, set in this really fantastical world. It's got these really out there elements. It's like in this world where like, you know, a, a giant squid monster is destroyed New York and there's like reigns of squid and you know, people have magical powers and like it's got all this alternate history and it's, you know, so full of these wacky science fiction uh, elements and that for like a lot of TV shows, that would really be enough to generate it. You would just sort of tell the next stage of the Watchmen show with all these like funny bits and pieces. Yeah. Um, but that it was very unusual to see a story like that that also was like there's racism in this world and they're dealing with the, the racism straight up. So it's like doesn't kind of treat those elements of society as something that's like um, uh, that you can simply extract from your story, but rather yeah. that it's like that is how the world is. And that if you're telling a fantasy story, you can also, you know, you can basically be bold enough to be like, well, we've got to deal with this as well, you know, and not that everything with people of color in it has to be about racism, but it's a more ambitious way to uh, to approach storytelling yeah uh, for sure. which like yeah colorblind class is no replacement for but yeah but no, nevertheless i think it was definitely preferable to them just like like i definitely don't give a shit that like these you know, people were not as you know that everyone was more white in victorian england or whatever. yeah I don't give I'm, a shit I, and, and i almost i really like the idea that people will have gone and been very annoyed about it some, some people would have been really annoyed yeah about yeah, it. yeah that's great yeah 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I look forward to listening to Lawrence Fox's song about uh, <laughs> uh, about how much he hated the new David Copperfield. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It'll, it's going to be the UKIP calypso for the next generation, <laughs> I think, <laughs> for sure. All right. Any any final thoughts on Davy Davy C? The, the, I, the personal H of Davy C. Yeah, the personal H of Davy C. I think I, I I hear what you say about it being kind of very like enjoyed it in the moment. It, it's not going to linger. I can really see myself because I, th- I think it's a U. Maybe it was a PG. I'm pretty sure it was even just a U. It's got a U. Uh, vibe. I don't know when the last time I saw a U was, but boy, yeah, it was. It was just so refreshingly fun. I think for me, I want it uh, to be. I can really, really see it being like a Christmas. It's not at all Christmassy, but a Christmas staple for generations. Just a nice little. DVD to stick on or whatever amazing format we're using in the future. I'm going to be like, you know what I fancy watching about once a year is the personal age of Davy C. This is definitely and a movie that I can hear in my voice. The BBC one announcer yeah. saying is coming up next. I, it's it's right just, there. It's in my, right there. In my mind's ear. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think it's a great family film. There's no one that wouldn't enjoy it. It's nice and British. And yeah, they did really well to translate it uh, to screen and to avoid... Like the one thing about Dickens is it just goes on and on and on. And it's just the same characters constantly bumping into each other. Like, oh, five years later. Oh, guess who I ran into again? Oh, my old school teacher. It's like, yeah, like you did two chapters ago. So I think they um, did really well to just kind of like get rid of the chaff. This was pure wheat and uh, and I really enjoyed it. A film of pure wheat. A film of pure wheat. There you have it. I think I, I think I probably liked it a little less than you, but I did find it very enjoyable. And uh, yeah, go check it out. Jake, thank you so much for joining us on Film Chat, making history as only our you know, fourth or fifth ever guest. I am honoured, honoured. And hope we have you back. Can I just, before I go, give it a, a star review? Yes, I, I wanted, we don't normally do stars. I know, I wanted to do a film that was really bad and say five, so five stars? Yeah, five stars out of five million stars. Yeah, yeah. But I actually really did enjoy it, so I'm going to have to give it one star, but out of one. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Uh, yeah. Perfect little grace note. <laughs> <laughs> Wicked. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for coming on. Ugh, Danny, want to shout something? Oh, yeah, great. Yeah. Good job. Yeah, that's nice. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> when Ralph heard something that changed his life, what he listened to? When John Cusack made a mixtape for his future wife, what did she listen to? And when Michael Madsen cut a guy's ear off, what was he dancing to? And when Tim Robbins showed Shawshank that he had enough, which record did he choose? Alright, thanks so much for joining us. Thank yeah, you yeah, 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 for, yeah, yeah. for that uh, review of David Copperfield and stand, standing in for Danny. Hope you didn't, hope you noticed. I was about to say, hope you didn't notice. I don't know why. <laughs> that would be good. Uh, yes, join us next week. We'll be reviewing Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Celine Siamma's latest sumptuous Bro. romance, The Female Gaze on Female Gaze. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Great. Re- we'll be using that one next week. That's yeah. too good to lose. And also, I kind of watched that Horace- Harrison Ford movie with him and that dog. Uh, what is that film? It's called uh, the, the Call of the Wild. Mm-hmm. But what's, what's it about? I don't know, but I've just seen a clip online of basically they got Terry Notary, who is like a motion. I remember ca- he's, he's played he's played the uh, some apes from uh, the Planet of the Apes films. Absolutely, he a man pretending to be an ape in the square. Yeah, he's done a lot of motion capture work, and he played the dog 
in this Harrison Ford dog movie and there's this behind the scenes clips of like him like crawling around on green screen and like like Harrison Ford like patting his head and stuff and like taking like feeding him stuff and taking a letter out of his mouth and then like it's like a sort of VFX like showreel thing and then like insane. and then like you know they sweep over it it's just like replaced by a perfectly photorealistic dog and it's like don't what, they don't what they? is it the dog has to do in this film that a real dog could not do I'm, <laughs> I'm intrigued now it's like yeah it's like surely it must have been cheaper just to get a really smart dog they exist right you can train dogs they look after blind people you know like well don't we have like decades of dogs doing stuff in movies yeah trains trains dogs doing miraculous things in films you know that's another problem of state-of-the-art cgi they're putting people have gone hard-working dogs out of business you know yeah what next Terry, terry notary pretending to be like a chair and a totally motion captured chair for, for Harrison Ford to sit in and it looks like a real chair but behind the scenes it's Terry Notary on his on all fours yeah I feel the way about this as like turfs feel about trans rights oh what's next oh, oh yeah Terry oh, Notary he play- identifies as a chair <laughs> on the screen oh. his gender is a chair <laughs> oh what he's gonna play a rock is he oh he's a rock now oh, oh, I, see. oh, oh I see yeah Harrison Ford swatted a flight was that Terry Notary as well <laughs> in microscopic size Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, he's allowed to use my bathroom because he's pretending to be a tree. Oh, he's oh. eating a risotto. Is Terry Notary each individual grain of Arborio rice? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my capped in. Fucking grinds my gears. Anyway, so I might watch that. <laughs> I mean, I've never heard of this film. As far as I know, you're making this up. But the fact that... Uh, it, like, the fact that this gimmick exists, that means that when you're watching the film, you must be spending the whole movie like, what is the dog going to do? It's, it is going to do something that no dog would ever do. <laughs> like, at any moment, you know the dog is going to do something that a dog would never do. But it's not just a case of, like, they just CGI the dog for that one shot. <laughs> it's going to be the whole film to create a sense of consistency. So most of the time, presumably... Is it like... It's not like a science fiction film. It's just like... An old man and dog, like a sort of Hallmark movie kind of yeah. thing. That's what I gathered from this behind-the-scenes thing. It's a Hallmark film. So, like, there, there'll bit, be scenes yeah. where he just goes through a walk and the dog goes to his bowl and eats. <laughs> you know a man did that. You know, <laughs> that shot cost $20 million. It cost $20 million, and it looks exactly like a real dog. They oh, somehow no. convinced this, this man to go and lap uh, food out of a bowl in a way that exactly like a dog would. Hold up. I got the synopsis for you here. Buck is a big-hearted dog whose blissful domestic life gets turned upside down when he's suddenly uprooted from his California home and transplanted to the exotic wilds of Alaskan Yukon in the 1890s. It's not clear if he's also in the 1890s. (laughs) As the newest rookie on a male delivery dog sled team, Bug experiences the adventures of a lifetime as he ultimately finds his true place in the world. Oh, so the the dog is the central character. The dog is the main character. I guess Dan Stevens is in it. Oh, I like Karen Gillan, Bradley Whitford, Omar Sy... And Harrison Ford, and Terry Notary as Buck. (laughs) Unless they're all also playing dogs. It's a a children's film, perhaps. Sounds like. Uh, No, it's a hard R. (laughs) No, no, it's it's, it's a kids' movie. (laughs) Directed by Wes Craven. Um, Well, I guess it's half term, so it's the half term crowd. Anyway, so gonna watch that, and also this uh, Um, hugely acclaimed uh, drama. Yeah, cool. All right, thanks, guys. Join us next time. Oh, and uh, just before we sign off. Got a message from uh, Toby uh, Mackenzie Barnes, which I had overlooked until Danny just drew my attention to it, which I'm you know sorry about because I didn't I didn't actually check our Twitter account very often. A lot of times when we get notifications, it's just those kind of did you miss this 
tweets, yeah, yeah, tweets yeah. and I find those really nice. So anyway, uh, he added us to say, uh, glad to hear you slamming 1917. To me, the most offensive thing about this film is having the gall to name your film 1917 and not make it about the Russian Revolution. I'm not sure if it's too late for a massive reshoot. Have made poster to help get transition started. And he has... Uh, oh, God, I'm going to show my terrible ignorance by not being able to recognize uh, Lenin. Oh, this must be Lenin and Trotsky. This is right. <laughs> <laughs> He's finished up Lenin and Trotsky onto... Uh, um, Snowborn uh, Napoleon, right? Uh, he's photoshopped Snowball and Napoleon onto the heads of the uh, the two young privates in the 1917. Um, Toby also got in touch to say, I just watched A Field in England. Considering you're both avowed wheat heads, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. Well, I'm doubting I've ever described myself as a wheat head. But I love Ben Wheatley. You love Ben Wheatley. I've seen all his movies. Yeah, I have not seen A Field in England. Uh, and uh, uh, we put a call out... Uh, recently for for requests for for movies for me to catch up on so we can so we can discuss them and why not stick with uh british folk british weird folky, pagan weird horror stuff yeah uh, so i'm going to catch up on a field in england and uh and we're going to review it on this podcast thanks for your uh, correspondence toby uh, sorry that didn't didn't notice this till just now <laughs> I think we're just we're just not that great at the Listen, amp, the okay. stuff. Listen, we're we need a, like an assistant. We're a team to, operation to manage, to manage our social media. <laughs> it takes accounts. a long time to just set up the microphones. All my and... social media attention is 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 taken up by uh, banging on about Labour Party shit on my on my personal account. <laughs> yeah, and um, I'm very busy doing you, other you're, stuff. You're doing other things. You're doing other things. I'm sending funny tweets and no one uh, likes and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I tweeted that when can we discuss that Little Women had the same ending as Zoolander? And only one person liked it. I uh, thought that was that was the that was the film Twitter comment. I didn't even I didn't see that Twitter. Sorry, the, the, well, they but made, it's got they, the same ending. A school for, for kids that don't read so good. <laughs> that is true. That is a, that is funny. That is a good point. Uh, all right, folks. Thanks for sticking with us through another episode of Film Chat. See you next time. See you later. Bye bye. Congratulations, this is Christine Ha from Korea Times. I remember a very early days, you just hoped Parasite made the audience talk about after watching it. Now, all over the world, talk about Parasite Bong Joon-ho. Congratulations. How do you become great storyteller, best director, and win over Hollywood? <laughs> 아이 저 원래 좀 이상한 사람이에요. 그래서 평소 하던 대로만 했었고 여기 우리 프로듀서 곽 대표님이나 한진원 공동작가나 배우들 뭐다 평소 하던 대로 했던 것뿐인데 이런 놀라운 결과가 있어서 아직도 얼떨떨하고 네, 지금 약간 뭔가 네, 뭐가 이렇게 이렇게 하면 꿈에서 깰것 같은 느낌? 네. So I'm just a very strange person. I just did what I've always done with great artists, uh, with producer Park and my co-writer Han Jinwon and with all my actors. It was the same process making this film, but we've had these amazing results. It still feels very surreal. I feel like something will hit me and I will wake up from this dream. It's really fucking crazy. <laughs> <laughs>